outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Market House has the cleanest, leanest, juiciest meat and seafood shipped to your home overnight. Expect the service of a local butcher and the convenience of a large supplier. Unlike many online butchers, you can grab just one meal's worth or lock in for a subscription box. Choose from grass-fed and grass-finished beef, American Wagyu, free-range poultry, grass-fed lamb, wild-caught king crab, seafood, and more. For 15% off your first order, use code COUNTRY at checkout. Just visit MarketHouse.com. That's M-A-R-K-E-T-H-O-U-S-E dot com. And use the code COUNTRY. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. And today on the show, I'm joined by world champion archer and lifelong bow hunter Levi Morgan to discuss his techniques and practices for finding, scouting, and hunting whitetails when time is short. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light. Today, we're talking whitetails on a quick turnaround time. We're talking whitetails when time is of the essence. We're talking about how to find, scout, and hunt deer when you got to do it fast. Maybe you've got a quick weekend you can hunt. Maybe you're on a rutcation. You've got one week to find and hunt deer in a new place, and that's all you have. Maybe you're just a really busy mom or dad with kids and a day job, and you can only get out to hunt a few times here and there, and you just don't have a whole lot of time to squeeze in this hunting passion, whatever it is. I think all of us have found ourselves at one time or another trying to figure out how can we turn up the speed dial on this whole figuring out the deer thing. That's uh, that's one of those wishes that I think most of us have. And our guest today is somebody who has had to live with these same time constraints, but with really high stakes because he's going out and hunting across the country in a lot of different situations on really short, quick trips, and he's got to get the job done. This is Levi Morgan, of course. He is, I think, arguably, maybe not even arguably, maybe it's just obvious, the best, one of the very best tournament archers in the country. He's a world champion, multiple world champion, uh, every single different title in the shooting arena. He seemingly has won it. He is also a diehard, dedicated bow hunter. Levi is the host of Bow Life TV. He's been chasing whitetails for for decades across the country and doing it very successfully in in all sorts of different types of situations. He's been in the Midwest, he's been in the West, South, East, DIY by permission, leases, everything. I mean, he's done it all. So he's got a lot of experience, and that's experience he can pull from that we can all learn from. So today, what I wanted to grill Levi about was how he does it so fast, how he finds deer quickly on new properties, how he figures out a new farm quickly, how he starts these short hunts knowing that he doesn't have a lot of time to get it done. So how do you start right? How do you end right? 
How do you know when to pivot? How do you know when to change up your strategy? How should you use trail cameras and scouting without messing things up since you only have a few days to get it done? All these questions and more are what we covered. Uh, We also get into some very interesting conversations around routines and mindset. That's something that Levi has perfected within his archery career, and it translates to hunting. I think it's something that for all of us on quick trips or quick weekend hunts, whatever it is, that kind of thing can make a difference too. So this is a fun conversation and one that I really enjoyed and learned from. I know you will too. So I'm not going to I'm not going to do a long intro here. I think next week we're going to try to get on and fill you in on what's been going on in my hunting season and some of the other guys on the team, but for today we're going to get right into the interview. I will just give you a quick uh, reminder. If you're not already subscribed to our Wired to Hunt weekly newsletter, make sure to go do that as soon as you're done listening to this or maybe maybe hit pause and go subscribe right now. That's where you're going to get all of our new articles that were being published over at Wired Hunt from our whole slate of people. We've got videos coming out from people like Levi Morgan, like Tony Peterson, like myself. We've got articles from folks like Tony Hansen, Andy May, Bo Martonic, uh, John Eberhardt. We've got, of course, this podcast. We've got the Foundations podcast from Tony. We've got Rut Fresh Radio coming out every Wednesday from Spencer. You'll get updates on all of that through the Wired Hunt Weekly Newsletter. If you just go to themeateater.com slash wired, You'll get the pop-up to sign up for that newsletter. Check it out. I send you an email every Monday telling you what's up, what's new. Highly recommend it. Finally, make sure you're following me on Instagram at wired to hunt to get the day-by-day hunt recaps. I'll be sharing updates on my Michigan hunts. As I am recording this right now, I am about to head to Washington, D.C. for an urban bow hunt. And uh, that's going to be a very, very different kind of thing for me. So you'll want to get the updates on that too. I'll be sharing it all over on the Wired and Instagram. So check that out. And I think that's it. I think that's all the updates I've got for you. I hope your hunting's going well so far. It's uh, it's crazy. October's here. It's only going to get better. So uh, enjoy this one with Levi. Best of luck out there. And let's get to it. All right. With me on the line now, I've got Levi Morgan. Levi, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I know uh, you're a busy guy this time of year, all over the place. Uh, so carving out this time is no small thing. I, I recognize that. And it's it's kind of exactly the topic I want to talk to you about, which is making use of the little amounts of time that we have. Whether you're you know, someone in your position where you are traveling around the country hunting and you've got you know a week here, a week there, or if you're just someone who's got a regular day job and you only have a week of vacation or you only have weekends and you have to find deer fast. I think that's something that a lot of people have to deal with. And you seem to have particularly gotten good at it. Uh, I mean, geez, just looking at what you've done so far this season, you've gotten on deer quick and figured them out and, and been able to fill a tag. So when you when you hear that, when you hear finding whitetails fast. What's the first thing that comes to your mind? Like, what do you think is, if you had to just quickly, your gut instinct, what's the most important thing to finding deer fast? What do you think that is? Cameras. Um, I think, yeah, that's been something I've had to, to do, um, and had to become good at if I wanted to be successful, you know, <laughs> in over the last, uh, 12 or 13 years, however long I've been doing that. But, 
Um, yeah, it's just honestly a lot of pre-planning, a lot of, uh, getting cameras out in the summer and, and letting those do a lot of the scouting for me. Um, and, and in certain places like this past week in Ohio, when I shot my biggest deer ever first day, opening day, um, which that was kind of a, a different story cause that's my family farm. And mm-hmm. I kind of know if like, if I'm getting pictures of a buck in a certain area, most year to year, the bucks, the big bucks will use that area the same. So past history is very important. If you have history on a farm and like really paying attention from one year, um, because normally even a different buck, when he moves in, he's going to use that area very similarly to, you know, maybe a buck you hunted there five years ago. Yeah. So, um, I knew when I started getting pictures of that deer on the farm and kind of, he would only show up on one camera and I kind of knew where his core was. And so, um, it made it a lot more simple to move in and and focus on him. And, And that's the thing that, you know, I think I've learned to do better over the years is just simplify things instead of, cause you can like get spun out pretty quick when you got five days and you're on a new piece of property and you have no idea where to even start. Yeah. And so if I like, sometimes I, I don't have the ability to run cameras previously. Maybe I get permission late in the year and we've done that before, like get permission. And like the next day it's like November 6th and we have no idea, but we're going in blind. And, um, Honestly, that's one of my favorite ways to hunt is just off of aerial going in on Google Earth or or whatever and and keeping the wind right and hunting my way into a property. So starting on the outsides and hunting in and and learning as I go as far as watching the deer movement, move in a little closer and just get more aggressive with each day um, is kind of my strategy in most situations. Yeah. Let's talk a little more on the trail camera front is that when you show up on a a new spot or you show up for a hunt and maybe it's a place that you have hunted in the past but this is your your window to hunt it is now um let's assume that you didn't get cameras out in the summer and so now it's okay i need to figure out what they're doing right now is is the trail camera thing the very first thing you do like when you get there day one or you get there the night before day one is your first plan going to be okay tomorrow at some point i'm setting cameras uh if that is the case how specifically are you usually doing that is it always four cameras spread out here is it 20 cameras or talk to me about like the specifics of what you usually do in that situation yeah in that situation it's going to be the least intrusive option um because like i'm not just going to go you know strolling through the property, hanging cameras, because then you just pretty much ruined it for the next three days. So what the cell cameras are really big for me, um, then, so I don't have to continually go back and check my cards. Um, cause every time I feel like every time I walk into a place, it's just my chances of killing my target deer go down, uh, you know? And so what I do in that situation is I'll have a backpack of cameras. Like I'll keep four or five cameras in my pack that I hunt out of and I hang them as I hunt. So I'll hunt an area. Um, maybe I walk over a crazy good scrape line or see one going into a, a hanging hunt. And so I'll hang a camera there. And so I'm just always got my head on a swivel. Like if I haven't been able to scout this property at all and I just get there, it's like using every bit of information that I possibly can. 
um, and being as unintrusive as possible, but still be aggressive. I don't even know if that makes sense, but like I'm trying to watch my access. I don't want to be blowing the deer I'm hunting out going in and I might even hang cameras. Like if I can see like Nebraska, for example, Nebraska is an easy place to hang cameras on food because it's all ag and alfalfa and all the deer are going back across the Platte River and bedding in the cottonwoods and the cedars. So I'm not blowing them out trying to hang cameras on the field edge. So yeah, if I get to Nebraska, you know, the day before opener, I, I might drive my truck down that alfalfa edge, hang cameras on trails, uh, scrapes, whatever, and no, you know, no harm done. But Southern Ohio, big timber woods, um, creek bottoms, cedar thickets, deer could be bedded anywhere. I'm not going in there until I go to hunt. You know, I'm going to go from an aerial high percentage sit where I can maybe see and kind of gain intel with my eyes and then hang cameras as I hunt. So that's kind of how I would approach that probably Okay. in two different scenarios. Yeah. Now what about the specific like camera setups? You mentioned a couple different examples, maybe a scrape, maybe a trail. Can you just talk to me about, I mean, you've, you've ran cameras as, as much as almost anyone probably, you know, where do you stand these days as far as, how far away from a scrape or where you think the deer is going to be? Do you, do you like them high in the camera? So they're above eye level. Do you not care about that? When you're actually putting them up, what are the specific details you're thinking about nowadays? Yeah, for sure. I think the more I run cameras, the more I realize that big mature deer know they're there and big mature deer will avoid them. If, if, you know, and, and I've learned that certain deer don't care and certain deer do. Mm -hmm. So, cause I think we run, 40 cameras just on our home farm and i'll watch certain deer walk around them like they will i hardly ever get a picture of some deer because they just they know i don't know if they hear it going off they smell the electronics something they do not like about it so what i've found is is if i can get it out of eye level i like to hang especially if it's um like a bedding area scrape line something like that i really like to hang it higher where they're not looking at this camera the whole time and so um and i like to put like on scrapes or trails i'll put it on like three shot burst every 10 seconds because you know especially once we get later in the year when you know a buck might be following a doe something like that on a trail uh, i don't want to miss those things and i'm not leaving these cameras out for months at a time so i'm not worried about batteries dying i just want to make sure i'm not missing a piece to the puzzle, I guess. But I do like to hang them above eye level, pointed down. The deer just definitely don't get bothered as much. It is kind of, um, it, it takes away from the quality of the picture because it's way more busy. Like when you're trying to see what that animal is, like his horns are going to blend into the sticks and leaves and all yeah. that stuff. And it's harder to really get a good solid picture of a buck when you hang it high, pointed down. But if if you can see like, okay, that's a definite shooter at that point, it really doesn't matter if you can score him, you know, over the phone or not, or count his stickers or whatever. But I just want to make sure I'm not running this deer out of his normal pattern. So I definitely like to hang cameras about my head height, um, and pointed kind of down at whatever, you know, uh, I've got it on whether it's a scrape or a fence gap or something like that. Okay. And do you ever run traditional cameras anymore in a situation like that? Or is it all sell? 
No, I do. I run a lot of traditional cameras just because I don't have enough yeah. tail cameras. If I had enough, I definitely would not run traditional cameras anymore. Yeah. But I don't, so. So, so yeah, so I'm, I'm in the same boat. Uh, in that case, then, what's your take on checking those? So you mentioned that you would either, you'd hang them if it was easy access, like the Nebraska thing. But if not, mm-hmm. you would only do that in and on the way to hunt. How, on a short hunt like this, like how often are you yeah. going to check those cameras? And will you only check them when you're walking past to hunt? Or in this case, will you get to day three and you're like, dang it, I got to go and I got to walk a special walk just to find out what's happening here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you got five to seven days and day three, you're not on anything. Uh, and you got, you know, four or five cameras soaking on the other side of the farm. Definitely. That's the time. Like, okay, I'm, I'm hopefully going to look and find the windiest part of the day, middle of the day. Um, try to keep my wind right, you know, make sure I'm as scent conscious as possible and slip in there and pull the cards. I'm probably going to wear latex gloves because you know everything you touch i'm trying to touch as little as possible and i don't want these deer to know i'm there but you've got to find one you know if you're not on one then you need to go pull cars i'm definitely going to do that i mean that's the time where you take chances and uh it's so funny because i hunt my home farm completely different than i hunt when i'm on the road because <laughs> yeah. i baby that thing you know they don't even know they're being hunted and when i get on the road i'm like really aggressive I'm like, it's time to go, you know, and, um, especially if I haven't found one and we got three days left, like we're, we're moving different areas every sit, you know, pulling cards and scrambling. So, yeah. So, so that, that brings up a good question. So you mentioned what you're doing, you know, on the final days of the hunt, but day one of the hunt, you mentioned that usually you like to start somewhere, some kind of observation hunt. Um, Mm -hmm. but I remember hearing you once talking about when you're moving in, to, to set up a new spot. You talked about the importance of scouting with your eyes and not necessarily walking all over a new property to find that tree, but to actually glass or stop and look before you walk all over the place. So, so when you're heading in for hunt number one on this new spot, can you just walk me through that process of scouting with your eyes before you actually pick your observation stand? Yeah, absolutely. So like hanging hunts, which is something we do probably 95% of the time when we're, you know, traveling, hunting. Um, because I've just found that I feel like that's my best, I have my best success on like hanging hunt type deals. So, um, when I'm trying to pick a tree, even an observation set, I want somewhere that's safe, but that I'm still in the game, um, where I'm not blowing deer out, but I still have a chance to kill one. But what I meant by that was like, I guess when I was younger and a little more like, I would, I guess I'm just as aggressive now, but in a way smarter way, I would just go right into the juice and like looking at trees like, Oh, that looks like a decent tree. I'd walk over to it. Look, Oh no, it's crooked. Or that fork comes off too weird. And okay, that looks like a good one over there. Go over there and look. And so now instead of like leaving scent trails all over where I'm hunting, I'll stay back and like really pick these things apart and make my plan as far away from where I'm going to hang as possible. So I'm not wasting time in there and I'm not spreading my scent everywhere where I'm actually going to be hanging. So if I can look at this spot from a distance, me and my brother, who's normally running camera for me, we'll sit there and brainstorm and try to have the tree picked 
front when we go in there. So we waste no time. We get there, we go up, we set up, we're in. And uh, instead of getting to the spot and then trying to plan while we're walking around, you know, right where we want to be sitting. So, yeah, makes a lot of sense. Use your use your binoculars and those other tools to right. avoid spreading scent all over the place if you don't have to. I mean, right? Uh, there's no quicker way to educate the deer than than take a hike, right? Yeah, it's unbelievable, man. And and like just <laughs> how many times, you know, walking in, and I always try to like walk in where I can shoot, like, because I've had so many times where that deer's coming in, coming in, and he cuts my trail. doesn't matter how much, you know, you take care of your scent. Sometimes they don't get you, sometimes they do, but a lot of times when they cut your track, they'll stand there for a while. Not so much when they hit your wind stream, that the wind's blowing, but when they cut your track, a lot of times they don't know, you know, they're still searching, like, where did it go? They're curious. They're not sure. They're not, a lot of times they don't just bolt, but they stand there and they're, they're on alert and they stop. They freeze a lot of times. So I always try to walk right where in a place that I can shoot. So if that buck's in, in bow range and he's coming in and he, or he's walking by and he hits that trail, if he freezes and I know that's it, I can shoot him. Cause I had several times where, you know, I slipped through the thick stuff all the way to the base of the tree. Well, that buck hits my, my track and freezes and he's in the thick stuff and I got no shot, you know, and then he turns and goes back the way he came. And I'm like, dang it. Like, I wish I'd have walked in 10 yards to the left. I could have killed him right there. You know? So I learned that the hard way a few times, but yeah, yeah, I, I, I definitely can relate to that one. Uh, so scouting with your eyes, you know, from a distance is one thing, but I also, of course, I know that even though you are trying to walk around as, as minimally as possible, whenever you are, you're, you're still scouting and trying to learn as you go. I, I think one of these same conversations I was listening to, you were talking about how there's this temptation to pick a spot and say, okay, I just got to get there. And then you're just kind of trudging along, just covering ground and looking at your boots. But really right. you want to have your head up, looking around, learning as you go along. What are the kind of things like what are the next level things? Like I know when you're hiking and you're looking for scrapes and rubs, like we all are, but what's the details that you're looking for when you're heading into a new property that you really want to zero in on that, that get Levi Morgan spidey senses tingling and saying, Oh wow, this is, this is what I need. This is, I need to stop now. I'm not going to go any further. Uh, this is the thing that we're looking for. Can you give me like the, the nitty gritty? Yeah, I can like, I'll use an example. Um, so like it, it really revolves around like those sneaky food, like, I don't, like not obvious food, like big bean fields or like whatever. It's like that one white oak tree that that's mm-hmm. dropping in a random spot that like the deer can eat and feel safe or it's a honeysuckle thicket or it's a persimmon tree that I didn't know about. Um, it's, because those are the places that that big buck is coming to in the daylight, you know, and he's where he might not be getting to those big food plots or whatever in the daylight. Um, that's what I'm looking for when I'm coming in. Like it may be a scrape line. It may be a rub line. It may be a sneaky little ditch, um, that he's using to walk down, you know, cause I've killed so many big deer just on, cause they don't like to walk in the open. They don't like to walk where they can be seen forever. So, um, and they don't like to feed there either. So it's, 
it's that acorn tree, that white oak tree that they're feeding under. Even on years that a lot of the white oaks are falling, for some reason, those deer pick one that they hit heavier. Those bucks are on, they like one tree, they'll walk over, you know, 200 yards of, of white oaks to eat under one. So if I'm looking for that one that has the most acorns popped under it. And my dad taught me this when I was real little, looking for the the difference in an acorn that's ate by a squirrel and one that's ate by a deer. And the one that's ate by a deer will be cracked long ways in half and the squirrels will be chewed on. And um, huh. so if you find acorn holes that are popped in half long ways, that's deer eating those. And so um, my dad taught me that when I was real young and I've never forgot that. And so paying attention to little stuff like that, where I'm like, holy cow, there's like, there's like white oak holes everywhere right here. And then there's, you know, deer droppings everywhere and scrapes all, I'm like, holy smokes. Like this is a little sneaky spot that is not obvious that I would have just walked through and just thought it's another acorn tree. But just those little things like that would be like a real good example of, you know, what I'm looking for. And even so I'll use Mississippi as an example. Two years ago, we're, we're driving a little area. It's 3,500 acres of swamp and like, uh, just big timber thicket stuff. It's hard to hunt. And there's a little place we call a parkway on our, on our lease. And we're driving down the road and we're like, look at the tracks crossing right here. Like no reason, like, but we're just paying attention and it's like a, a highway of deer tracks crossing this sandy road. So we step out and we walk 70 yards following these tracks and there's like two persimmon trees that are like falling and it looks like a whole field of hogs had been in there, but it's white-tailed. And so we throw a camera on it and half our shooters are showing up on this persimmon tree in the daylight. And wow. it's just like those kind of things where you just pay attention and you don't, you're not just powering through a spot just because it hasn't been good in the past. Maybe those persimmon trees haven't dropped in five years, you know, and you wouldn't have noticed it, but now they're dropping and every deer within a half mile is coming to them. So, yeah, keying in on that, on those changes is, is so key. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that Seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it do its job. Now, you probably know someone who's used a can of Seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Market House has the cleanest, leanest, juiciest meat and seafood shipped to your home overnight. Expect the service of a local butcher and the convenience of a large supplier. Yeah, and Market House provides everything from grass-fed beef to free-range chicken, mm. grass-fed lamb, and even wild-caught king crab and seafood. 
Market House keeps small farm values, trusted sources, and clean mouth-watering food for your family. And like I said, Market House ships all orders overnight. Order today, enjoy tomorrow. And you can even keep the camo on for dinner, even if filet mignon is on the table. With Market House, it doesn't matter because the cuts and catches come straight to your door. Unlike many online butchers, you can grab just one meal's worth or lock in for a subscription box. And everybody knows how hard it is these days to find high-quality, sustainably sourced meat and seafood at their local grocery store. Choose from grass-fed and grass-finished beef, American Wagyu, free-range poultry, grass-fed lamb, wild-caught king crab, seafood, and more. For 15% off your first order, use code COUNTRY at checkout. Just visit markethouse.com. That's M-A-R-K-E-T-H-O-U-S-E dot com. And use the code COUNTRY. Another thing, though, that I'm thinking about when I hear this is the the opposite. Well, let me take a step back. It's when you find something like that that looks great. You, you, you scout your way in or you found something on the map that looked good. You head in there. You find this thing you want. You set up on night number one of this quick hunt you have. And you're expecting the world, but then nothing shows. Like you're, you don't see what you want to see. And this always leads me to one of the tougher things within a, a traveling hunt or a short-term hunt where you have – it's it's really easy when you set up in a stand and you see something to work with, right? You see, you see a ton of deer and a couple pretty nice bucks, but they're just out of range. And then you think, okay, well, then I just got to make a tweak. Or you see them 500 yards away and you realize, all right, I got into the general zone. Now I need to zero in. I realize I got to make a couple hundred yard shift down and, and then I'll be in the game. But what happens when you find a spot that you think should be pretty darn good and it just doesn't give you anything to work with? You don't see any deer or you see no bucks. And now it's this weird, this weird conundrum that at least I find myself in where I'm like, okay, do I believe in this place so much that I need to stick it out? Even though I haven't seen anything that's told me that outside of the sign, or do I move to another new random place and start from ground zero and try to learn a new spot? Um, how long will you give a spot or what are you thinking about when it comes to that? Like moving on or sticking a spot out that that hasn't proven itself yet. Yeah, that, I think you just explained bow hunting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very true. <laughs> very quickly. Yes. Because that happens way more than like the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Yes. But um, yeah, that's the hard part, man. It's like, I think it's more based on time of year too, whether I'm I'm staying or I'm leaving. So if I think that they're, they're like early season where they're close to bed and like where they're feeding, where they're bedding and they're doing generally the same thing every day, then I'm moving. Like if I sit there, like if I give it a good, like everything's right, conditions are right. And I still don't see them, see the one I want. I'm moving because they're generally doing very similarly, the same thing every single day. And so he's probably going to do whatever he did today, tomorrow. And that ain't coming here. So, um, however, like late October, they're starting to cruise more, you know, maybe they're checking scrapes every three, four days. Um, or even the rut where, you know, it's kind of wild card. You don't know what's coming or from where, um, then I might stick it out. Like if it's a good pinch, it's a good, like, I know there's big deer close and like, it's a, it's a spot. One's going to come in the next three days. I just need to be here. Um, then I'll probably stick it out. Um, I think the rut is when people jump around a little too much because they, you know, they sit a spot that's good. They don't see the one they want. They're moving. Well, 
it's such a random thing in the rut that big buck may be tending a doe and he's going to leave her tomorrow, you know, and he's going to walk right through here when he does. You just got to sit there from daylight till dark. And sometimes that sucks when you're not seeing anything. But I feel like those are the times where I'm more likely just to stick it out. Um, where like if they're keying on food early and late and I'm not seeing the one I want in the daylight, I'm, I'm bouncing, trying to find where he's moving in, in uh, shooting hours. Yeah, that makes sense. Can you can you tell me about, I think, that you did something just like what you're describing on those early season hunts in Nebraska and Wyoming. Can you walk me through kind of how those two hunts looked and how you managed to, to pull off what I think you're describing? Yeah, so Nebraska, I only have one year under my belt on this place. It was last year. Um, and it was incredible with the number of deer, but it also makes it hard because it's hard to keep those spots fresh. And, and so what I did there is we ran cameras this summer. We, we sent a bunch of cameras out to the farmer and he scattered them up and down the alfalfa, but it's like two miles of alfalfa on the, on the Platte river. So they can only tell us so much. And so we knew areas that had shooters. We'd get a picture of every once in a while. So okay, he's in that area. So what I did, um, trying to make a long story short, I got there two days before season and, and scouted and actually put my eyes on um, three or four different solid shooters on this alfalfa from like a mile away. Problem was getting in there to hunt them without blowing everything out um, with the winds that we had. So I just kind of hunted my way in still. Like I, I came in with a good wind, used the river for access, got in like on the edge of where I thought the furthest straggling deer might be on that first set. Um, just, just did not want to blow any deer out. Cause it's like a domino effect when there's that many deer and you run one out and it runs over another and then they both run over the rest of them and then yeah. they just all go, you know? So it's not spooking. You might not be running over top of all the deer, but if you run over one and then it runs over top of them, same difference. So I was trying to like, be as safe as possible get in there because I couldn't see exactly what trails they were using in the river. I didn't have enough information to be that aggressive and just go in and blow in there and hang a set. I could just see the general area they were coming out of in the river from our point of view. So I got close enough that first day to kind of see, then I knew, okay, the bucks are using the same little ravine. All the bucks used it. I saw it that first morning. They went back in and I thought that evening, okay, maybe they're doing a little bit of a circle. I'm going to, I'm going to give this tree one more sit. Well, that evening they came right back out of that ravine. I didn't get a shot. So I was like, okay, now I've got them pegged. I know right where they're coming out into this field. So the next day I moved in a lot tighter and then my buddy Andy showed up. And so we could kind of double team them on that river because they, two different groups of shooters were coming out in two places and we had them pegged. And so we had a different wind and we went in and, uh, actually me and my brother sat in a cornfield where they were kind of pinching down in between, um, like feed, which is like what farmers cut for silage. It looks like corn, but it's not. And then a cornfield and then the alfalfa kind of pinched down like a hundred yards between it. So we got the wind right, sat in that corn and killed one of those big shooters that first or that second night. So, <clears throat> that was one of those deals where, okay, they're not, they're not coming by this set. 
like we got it now we've got the intel we need we're moving you know and so we just kept bouncing closer and closer until we put ourselves in the game wyoming totally different that was a pure guess on my part when i killed that deer and um it was like a 500 acre alfalfa pivot in the middle of nothing so like sage hills you can imagine that and then a bottom with an alfalfa pivot and there was one group of cottonwoods on one side and then just canyons and gullies on the other side and so we saw this deer from the interstate um we saw some deer feeding down the alfalfa at like 11:30 in the afternoon we're like hmm, that looks like a buck Jeez. we pull over glass it like oh my gosh like biggest <laughs> deer i've ever seen in wyoming so it's like okay all focus goes to this deer now so me and Micah tried, literally, we laid flat in this alfalfa field one night, um, and we had every deer, over 200 deer come out into this alfalfa field. We beat them all, except for one doe that then ran over top of our big shooter, uh, and they ran out of the field. So <laughs> <Of course. laughs> that was awful. Like, I thought it's over, because they went into the sage the next morning, gone. The next evening, gone. Next day, no show in the entire field. So we're like, okay, we ran him out for sure. You know, he's just not going to tolerate that. And so at that point, it was like, there's only one place I felt like that we couldn't see. And that was this cottonwood patch. It's like five, six acres of like pond, old ponds, a little creek, like cattails, cottonwoods, just like somewhere he would go. Like when he got pressured, I felt like. And so... We went in there and I knew he wasn't, you know, he had changed. That's what I knew. I wasn't going to be stubborn and just keep hammering this spot when he's not there. I can see for a mile, you know, he's not here. So we just took a guess and, and me and Micah went in and, and hung a set and all the other bucks did not come in range. Like we were not hunting the group of deer anymore. We were hunting just one single deer and we took a chance and moved instead of just doing the same thing with, you know, where all the other deer were coming out. And I'll be danged if an hour before dark, I didn't look up and he was walking right at us and 38 yards walked right by us in broad daylight. So, <sighs> um, that was, that was a little bit of luck, but it was again, one of those things where it's like, he's not here. He's like, this is opening week. He's, he's just bed to food. That's it. Bed to food. And if he's not in this area he's not i mean at least not in the daylight there's no reason to keep keep coming back and and trying to hunt him where he was two days ago because he's gone you mm -hmm. know so well it we just kind of started moving it brings to mind i mean a really important part of any trip where you, it seems like at least in my situation too you, you head into a, a hunt like this you begin with a, a basic idea like, all right, I think I want to start in this zone because of the, what I saw on the map or because of history or whatever it is. And you go in and you kind of observe and hunt your way in and, and you hope that the scenario will play out kind of like it did in Nebraska for you, where you got eyes on one, then you can make some adjustments, move in and maybe do that a time or two or a couple of times and you're able to close the distance and, and make it all come together. But at some point on some of these trips, you get to the halfway point or something and that hasn't happened and you're still kind of blind and you don't have something to zero in on and you get to the last day or two or three. And um, I don't know, you've done this more times than I have, I'm sure. So maybe you don't have this little, little whispers of panic in the back of your mind, but at least I get a little bit of that. Just, ah, oh, man, you're only three days left now, only two days left now. And you, you, you really have to, 
control that concern and and make good decisions still, but it's it's harder when you don't have anything solid to work with except for the fact that you can cross this spot off the map and you can cross that spot off the map because you know it's not happening there. Um, you just gave me a really good example of, of something that you do, which is sometimes go to the one place you haven't yet. But can you talk to me about anything else you're thinking about when you get to the back half of a short trip like that and you, you still don't have them pegged? What are, what are the things you're switching to now? Like what's your ace in the pocket that you jump to when it's day four of a six day hunt or day five of a six day hunt and you're, you're striking out so far, what are you doing? What are you thinking? Yeah. I mean, there's always that little bit of panic, you know, um, there's no way around it because I, I mean, because you fail more than you succeed in bow hunting, you know? And so it's kind of hard not to have that little bit of panic in the back of your mind where you're like, dang, I don't, I don't have anything to chase and I've got two days left and I got nothing. You know, I feel like I've wasted the last four or five days and like, I have no Intel, but at the same time you've crossed out a lot. And that's kind of what I try to go to at that point. I'm like, okay, I don't have any good information, but I have a lot of places I know not to go. You know, I know that's like not the ticket, you know, or the deer aren't using there. So at that point I just start narrowing it down. Like, and, and sometimes it just doesn't work. You know, sometimes you just leave empty handed and you did everything you could and you made all the right decisions and he just didn't come by, you know, something happened, but I'm constantly at that point. Um, like I said, if it's not the rut or something, I, I'm, I'm moving and I feel like that keeps my spirits up too. Like once I hunt a, a stand for two or three days and I see nothing, it's hard to keep your like morale high and your confidence up like i feel like i've been to those sets where i'm just like well let's go back and get skunked again over here you know because Mm -hmm. that's what's going to happen you know which is not a good place to be no (laughs) (laughs) you know and i've been there a lot and uh where i'm just like i know like it's not going to happen here but so i try like no matter what if i go to a new set or a hanging hunt in an area i haven't been for some reason my confidence is just up and so Cause I'm like, it feels fresh. I don't know what's here. This could be money, you know? And most of the time it's not, but sometimes, you know, just like in Wyoming, it was, but I don't really have like a, like a secret sauce, you know, at that point, it's just grinding, you know, and hunting is hard the last day and the first day, like never, you know, there's never like a lazy moment where I'm like, yeah, probably ain't going to happen. And so like, let's go out, you know, a little later and, and, you know, not pay attention as much. Like I, I feel like I, the harder it gets is the harder I hunt. And I feel like that's always been the the key for us is like, we, we almost get more mad, like as we're getting beat, like we're getting our (laughs) butts kicked and it's like, not that like, okay, let's just give up. It's like, you know what? Like, let's dig in and like, let's, let's figure these suckers out. Like, what are they doing? You know? And so we're constantly like, even we'll be sitting in a stand, like looking at aerials, like, mm-hmm. where could he be? Like, okay, we saw him here, here, or, you know, we got nothing like this is this side of the farm is just like ghost. And so like, we're constantly strategizing, which to me is the fun part of whitetail. Yes. Like, that's why I do it. I, I um, uh, because there's so much strategy involved and they're so hard to kill like a big mature whitetail with a bow, like in five days, it's almost impossible 
you know, I mean, like that's what's fun about it is it seems a little bit unattainable to show up and you're like, no information, like, okay, find and kill a big mature deer in five days with your bow here. Um, okay. Like let's dig in. Like there can't <laughs> yeah. be any downtime. You know, you can't be like eating donuts back at camp at nine thirty in the morning. Cause that's just, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> unless that's your, like, if you're cool with not killing anything or not being successful in hunting is just a social thing for you, which it is for some people. Great. You know, don't put, make yourself uncomfortable, you know, ha- enjoy yourself, but don't be mad at the end of the week when you have an, a tag in your pocket. Like yeah. for me, the fun part of it is the grind. It's showing up, getting my butt kicked. That was a bad decision. Okay. Let's move on next. Like, okay, next what's what's next? What's next? What's next? And so that's my mind is always like, if this sit sucks, what are we doing in the morning? You know, and, and then just keeping my head on a swivel. And I feel like there's really no secret to whitetail hunting other than that. You just have to like hate losing <laughs> so much that's that you pretty, like won't give up. That's you know? pretty true. That's very true. <laughs> you, uh, you talked about, you know, just how your, your aggress your aggression level has to change too throughout, right? And you got to keep on grinding. But when you get to that back half of a trip and you haven't gotten it figured out yet, what does aggressive, when you say aggressive, like what does that mean? What does that look like for you when you're down in those last couple of days and you're trying to figure out what's next? What, what are those aggressive moves that you will pull out of the bag of tricks or the, the, the places that you'll explore on day six or seven that you would never touch on day one or two? Yeah, it's absolutely, it's, it's mainly the wind. So like, I'm, I'm so always like, conscious of which way the wind's blowing the deer that i'm blowing out whatever so there's always the places where the majority of the deer are like using those those intersections those the money spots that are normally in the center of what you're trying to hunt and like there's that's where you're most likely to get busted and you're always giving something up so those are the places i'm going i'm going in the bedding areas i'm getting close i'm i'm moving into bow range of the the most well-used, you know, funnel on the farm and where I know I'm going to spook some deer, probably some are going to get me like I'm giving it up, like I'm giving those up and I'm just moving in to be as aggressive as possible, um, in those moments. So like in the rut, that's going to be, let's move into the bedroom. Let's get on that, in that cedar thicket, like right on it, like in that Creek bottom, if deer come behind us, they come behind us, but we got to get in there. Um, to try to get within bow range and, and kill one. Um, early season, that's, you know, <clears throat> let's move in on those four trails that are dumping out, you know, and I know we've got those three that some of the deer use sometimes. It's going to be downwind, but it doesn't matter. We got to get in there, get right in the middle of them. Um, we got tonight and tomorrow left. Like, what do we, what do we got to lose? Like, there's no reason to sit back and hope one straggles by over here for the sake of not spooking those five does that are going to come out over here, you know? So that's the kind of thing that, that we'll do. And, um, you know, a lot of times it's kind of a, in the rut, <laughs> Andy, my buddy calls it finding them schooling cause he's a bass fisherman. And so he uses that term, like when they're chasing does, a lot of times we'll, we'll have stands on our back and slipping through. And because for some reason they, they do it in the same areas every year. And then we'll see them with our eyes. Um, there'll be four or five bucks and like on our place in Mississippi on a hot dough, 
and they're just running her back and forth and running her, running her all over the place. And then we wait till we see that to get up in a tree because they're going to be in that bottom. They're going to be on that ridge all day back and forth. And so like we call it, you know, now after hunting with him a little bit down there, it's like, all right, we're going to, we're going to walk until we see him schooling and then we're getting in a tree. <laughs> you got, you got to so, give me more details on this one because I, I, this is unconventional. So very, so very, but, so but talk to me, big, <laughs> sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, talk to me about like, when do you pull that one out in what kind of okay. places would that actually work? And then I need to know like, okay, what time are you getting out there? What's the, how are you using the wind to approach these places that you think mm-hmm. they'll be schooling? And then when you find a bunch of them chasing a doe, how do you manage to get set up close enough without spooking any of them? So, so give me the whole rundown from the nuts to bolts. Right. Okay. So I'll just give you like, so two years ago on our place down in Mississippi, um, we had a deer, it was a six by five, biggest deer on the farm. It's an absolute giant. And so it's super hard to hunt because down there it's just, it's really just timber. I mean, it's just thick, swampy timber. And so like, you got to be a very good woodsman to kill them down there. I mean, there's a lot of bucks, but like to target one and go after it, you got to be a good woodsman. So like we had no Intel, he hadn't shown up. So it's like, all right, let's just, let's just get in there. So this is like December 4th, which is peak rut and where we're at in Mississippi. So this is like when they're on does hard, like, that week out of the year that they're just chasing and like multiple bucks, like a hot doe has multiple bucks with her. Um, and it's just that, so one mature buck will have her and he'll be, it's almost like he's fending off three-year-olds and two-year-olds left and right. And so that chaos, when that happens, those deer are so occupied with each other, you can get away with a ton. Um, and so it's almost like when two bull elk are fighting and you can move in on them, mm-hmm. um, they're so focused on each other that you can walk right up to them and hit one in the head with a hammer. He's not going to know it. So that's what we're calling school. And like when those bucks are like that one big one's got the doe and he's just fending off bucks left and right. And so that's like a school of deer just like m- kind of migrating around in the woods, which is, you don't find every day, but there's like a week out of the year where that's happening a lot. And so that's what we would do. We were like, we like, let's go. So we put stands on our back and we went into this place we call the witch's den, which is on our lease. And it's like sanctuary almost like we never go in there. You know, it's just hard to hunt and there's really no way to hunt it safe. But this week out of the year, the deer are just like running crazy in this because it's like, they don't have pressure. It's like they're home. So we just eased in, eased in, wind in our face, wind in our face. Like I'm talking about one step at a time, eyes peeled, one step at a time. And all of a sudden we see a buck and then a doe wither. And then like all of a sudden there's just bucks walking circles around them. And we're like 200 yards away. And so he'll run one buck off. We move in a little closer. He comes back to his doe. He runs another buck off. We move in a little closer. And so we got as close as we felt like we could. We're probably 120, 125 yards away, in this, but it's thick and, and um, in this bottom. And so we just go up a tree as quick and as quiet as possible while they're chasing back and forth. We got bucks running under us, but they're just not as sharp as they normally are during this week. They're just one yeah. thing on their mind. And um, it's, a, it's a, the most aggressive way that you can hunt, in my opinion. And we, we got up in a tree and, um, ended up killing that, 
that big six by five. He, uh, he ran a buck off. And as he was coming back, I hit the horns together and he was just in one of those moods and he ran straight to the base of the tree and I killed him. So it was like, (laughs) just, and that would never work in any other scenario. But like when they're rutting that hard, you can be really aggressive and just move right in on them. And I almost killed a buck the same week doing the same thing called crooked brow. And he was the next biggest deer on the farm, which I ended up killing last year. But we did the same thing. We, we moved in till we found him with his doe and he was running bucks off and we got up in a tree and had him come by us three times that night and never got a shot. So it's, it's interesting cause it sounds crazy, but you're not the only one who does that. Uh, I, I remember talking to Andre DeQuisto about something like this and he, he talked about how there'll be these days, which I think any one of us who's hunted a lot during the rut can think of when you're sitting there in what you think should be a great place and there's nothing happening, right? It's, it's yep. dead. And days like that are days when they're schooling up somewhere else. And every buck in the area is in this other draw a half a mile away or something. And, and his recommendation is to get out of the tree dummy and go find where they're all at. Cause they're all somewhere. Um, right. and like you said, they're out of their mind to a degree. So you can get away with bumping a deer or two when you find that concentration because they're in there for a reason. And they're, like you said, not quite on their a game. Um, so there's, there's something to this. My question though, for you is outside of specifically when you're down there on this one property, when would you turn to that? Like, what's the, what's the cue or what's the point in a hunt where you're like, okay, it's time to find out where they're schooling. Is this uh only the last day of the hunt or is it when you realize like, oh, they're all locked down because you happen to see it off in the distance when you're driving and like, okay, I got to do that. Like what, what yeah. pushes you to do that? Because it seems like, like you said, very aggressive. You're covering a bunch of ground. You're walking around. It's high risk in a certain way. Yeah, <laughs> it is. And it's, but it's the one week you can get away with it. You know, it's like, I think it's not so much like, okay, this is day five of my hunt as, as it is. Okay. Today's when it's, it's happening. Like I only have five days of this, you know? And so, um, it's, it's kind of that more than it is anything where, okay, I'm driving, there's a buck locked down with a doe and, and okay, there's a buck locked down with a doe or, you know, people in the area, my buddies are like, I seen, you know, there's three bucks tending does over here, you know, or I, you know, just information tells me that that's happening. And when I'm sitting in good places, like, like you were just saying, and like it's crickets, there's only one reason that that could be, you know, (laughs) and that's because there's eight bucks on the same doe somewhere, you know? And yeah. so that's what I'm looking for, you know? And that's when I'm like, all right, you know, it's time. Like we got to go find them. And so we're slipping. And I mean, we're not just like trampling through the woods. We're very carefully being super stupid, I guess, <laughs> <laughs> but we're like walking slowly and like, cause they could all be bedded. Normally though, there's, there's several giveaways. There'll be young bucks standing before you'll see the big ones. Yeah. There's normally like, those little guys on the outskirts that are just circling they just walk in circles, trying to get in there and steal this dough for a sec, you know? And so when you see that, you better get your binos up and start searching. Cause that magical time, when you see that there is a mature deer with a doe somewhere right there. Yeah. Like if you see young bucks, just not leaving an area and you're like, well, they don't have a doe. No, they don't. But I guarantee you within a hundred yards, there's a hot doe and there's a big buck. So like, that's what, that's what we're looking for. 
Yeah. Now I know Miss Mississippi is unique with the timing of the rut in certain places, but across mm-hmm. most of the country, when you're in Pennsylvania or Iowa or something like that, what would yeah. you say the the best window for this kind of thing is? I'd say the tenth through the twentieth of November. Um, normally is when that's going to go down. A lot of times that first week in November is a lot of young bucks, a lot of, so you'll see big bucks cruising too, but you're, I think it's when peak estrus or those first few does really are hitting. Mm -hmm. And and like when I've seen that the most is like, yeah, second week to third week in November where they're really, um, concentrated on, I, I guess it's not when most of the does are in heat. Um, I mean, and it could be too, I guess it's just situational, but I'd say I've seen that happen more like in the Midwest that, uh, 10th through the 20th of, of November. And I'm sure that could happen on the first of November in the right situation. Uh, you get the right dough and that first dough comes into heat. I'd say that that's happening somewhere. Um, but you just may not know it because if it's, you know, you might still be seeing bucks because there's only one dough in heat, you know, but if she comes in, there's, there's definitely going to be bucks on her uh, like that and so i just think i see it more that because there's more does in heat and so you see that happening more visibly on the side of the road you see it kind of everywhere so um if you're paying attention you'll know when when that's happening yeah what, what do you typically do levi when you're up in a tree and you spot a shooter like the buck or one that definitely catches your eye and he's locked on a doe and it's just the two of them and they're mm-hmm. just kind of working away from you or you see them bedded down, you know, 120 yards away or something. Are you, are you ever going to get out of your tree and make a move on them? Or are you always going to wait or do you ever call? Like, what's your, what's your move when you see that? Yeah. If I see a buck with a doe, like a big deer with a doe and it's just them two, like, and that's why, like, that's after I think that schooling like we've been talking about happens like when he like finally fends them all off and then he's taking her somewhere that Mm -hmm. is off the beaten path away from a high concentration of deer out in the middle of a crp out in a little hedgerow somewhere um i don't call to him at all because that's what he's trying to avoid and and um when i see that i just let him be and try to find where they bed um because if it's out in a hedgerow um, like in Illinois where we hunted for years, like they used hedgerows a lot, big bucks. You'd, you'd watch them walk a doe a half mile out on a little brushy hedgerow and, and they'd keep her there. Um, so what we would do is set up that afternoon or the next sit on, you know, on that hedgerow, like for when he either left her or like he pushed her back down that hedgerow. Like normally they're going to come back down at some point. Right. So we would try to get between where we thought that doe might want to go or where he might go whenever he left her. Um, or we would try to make a play on him like a spot and stalk deal where, you know, if the terrain would allow it, um, or maybe it's the last day and I see that, you know, and I got to leave well, I'm getting down and I'm, I'm going, I'm getting the wind right. And I'm going to make a play like, let's go, you know? So, that's tough. I, I do not normally ever call to him because I've watched that push him. He would just take her and push her further and further away just to yeah. get her, get her away from that. Um, now if there's, uh, but like if he runs a buck off, if he, if that schooling's happened, calling and calling still works for sure because he's still like very aggressively running bucks away. 
Um, and so like that buck in Mississippi, he literally locked up and plowed this other buck, like just sent him through the freaking woods, like cartwheeled him. And like, he was like, and he like had that cocky attitude and every deer has got a different attitude. You could just see it. Like he was like, I'm the man, you know, like, and as soon as he did that, I like snort wheezed and hit the horns together. And he was like, what? You know, like, and he just barreled right into the tree. We were in that bubble. You know, you can't do that from 500 yards away and have it work. You got to be like on him. And like, he's got to think like you're a threat to take his dough. And then it, then it would work. Um, for sure. But like, if he's got her by himself, I very, maybe never have called the deer off a hot doe that was just alone and with her, you know, it just doesn't work. Yeah. That's a tough nut to crack. Yeah. (laughs) If you figure that out, let me know. (laughs) I've never been able to get him to leave that doe for anything. No. So one thing on their mind. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that Seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it do its job. Now, you probably know someone who's used a can of Seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Market House has the cleanest, leanest, juiciest meat and seafood shipped to your home overnight. Expect the service of a local butcher and the convenience of a large supplier. Yeah, and Market House provides everything from grass-fed beef to free-range chicken, Mm. grass-fed lamb, and even wild-caught king crab and seafood. Market House keeps small farm values, trusted sources, and clean mouth-watering food for your family. And like I said, Market House ships all orders overnight. Order today, enjoy tomorrow. And you can even keep the camo on for dinner, even if the filet mignon is on the table. With Market House, it doesn't matter because the cuts and catches come straight to your door. Unlike many online butchers, you can grab just one meal's worth or lock in for a subscription box. And everybody knows how hard it is these days to find high-quality, sustainably sourced meat and seafood at their local grocery store. Choose from grass-fed and grass-finished beef, American Wagyu, free-range poultry, grass-fed lamb, wild-caught king crab, seafood, and more. For 15% off your first order, use code COUNTRY at checkout. Just visit markethouse.com. That's M-A-R-K-E-T-H-O-U-S-E dot com. And use the code COUNTRY. Talking about all this different aggressive things that you're trying on these hunts, one thing we haven't really touched on would be like decoys or anything like that. Is mm-hmm. that ever anything you ever pull out for certain situations like this? Yeah, very rarely, but I, I did kill a deer last year just, and, um, he didn't come as a decoy, but the decoy is the only reason I killed him. So I did everything we've talked about. It's first sit in Illinois. Um, I was like, I, I know there's some shooters. There's this farm we call the South farm, but I'd never killed a deer on it. 
and I'd really only hunted it maybe once or twice in my life. It was just a property that we had permission to hunt. And it's a big open switchgrass farm on a river bottom, like very little woods, just patches of trees. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to go in an observation tree. Like I was literally 150 yards off a gravel road, but I could see the whole farm from this spot. And I was like, I'm going to get in a tree. I'm going to put a decoy out. And if a big buck's, you know, cruising or something, maybe I'll kill him. You know, I still want to be in the game, but I want to get eyes on a big shooter and try to find one. And so first morning and, um, we're sitting there and literally had me and Micah had like Yetis full of coffee. Like we're just like enjoying the morning, right? We're just up there drinking coffee, yeah. watching little bucks cruise the bottom. Like, and then all of a sudden this big shooter pops out like nine o'clock with a doe and he's like fending bucks off, fending bucks off. And, I, and then all of a sudden he starts pushing her right to us. And I'm like, holy cow, dude, like this might work, you know? Well, he pushes her under us like 50 yards in this, these briars that are like eight feet high. So I only know he's there because I can see these briars when they, they move. I can see where he's going. Well, my decoy is out to the left. He still hasn't seen it. Well, all of a sudden, like, she gets tired of his business or whatever. After they've been there for, like, an hour, she darts right by my decoy across the field and into the switchgrass. Well, he's out on her, like, big 161-inch deer, like, big deer. And, and as he blazes by, he locks up his brakes on my decoy <laughs> and just like bristles up for like three seconds and i shoot him wow and like so he didn't come to the decoy but when he busted out in the open and seen that buck standing there he like just fro like he just locked on him and he wasn't going to hit my decoy he was like walking by it like to go get his dough but he like stopped him long enough for me to get an arrow in him. And it was the coolest time. like holy cow it was one of the few times i ever killed a deer on a decoy and it was just slowed him down enough like to kill it you know so it was a it was a cool hunt but that was an observation set that just worked you yeah. know but it only worked because of the decoy i guess is that is that something that you employ often on observation hunts like that because that's something i never thought about but it does make a lot of sense if you're in a place that's not high deer traffic but good visibility why not throw out that decoy just in case yeah. Yeah, I do that. That's mainly when I use a decoy. If I'm going somewhere where I can see a long ways or a deer can see where I'm at from a long ways, I'll take a decoy, set it out because I'm like at work. I'm not going to run deer off with this, right. you know, and that's always my fear. But like if a giant buck is 200 yards away and I snort wheeze at him, he looks and sees a buck standing over there. He's way more likely to come over, you know, so that's kind of when I use a decoy. I normally like if I'm on a big buck. I hardly, I probably never am going to take a decoy in there, you know, um, because I just like to, to put as little attention on my area as possible. Yeah. But how, what's your, uh, what's your decoy setup? Like, how do you like to position it in relation to where you are, how far away, all that? Yeah, I, um, I put it about 25 to 30 yards away normally if I can and face it at me kind of at an angle. Um, because what I've seen is most deer like to come at them from the side. They don't come head on. They'll come at them to try to hit them from the side. And so, and, and I'll put it where the wind is blowing from the decoy straight to me. Cause they always, a lot of times those bucks will circle and try to come on the downwind side to smell what deer it is. Or, you know, maybe it's a buck that, you know, beat them in the past or something. I don't know what they're checking for, but a lot of times those bucks are trying to smell what deer that is. So 
like they, I guess they don't recognize it maybe or something and they're trying to circle downwind. So that normally puts them like top pin, like right there, you know? So yeah, I try to face it at me and then, cause they come like at the, like broadside on the decoy at the head side normally, um, when they're going to hit it. So yeah, that, that makes sense. Uh, obviously that's not a guarantee, but that's what I've seen most, most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to make a, I want to make a hard pivot here and, and kind of wrap it up with one final theme, I guess. Um, I'm, I'm going to make an assumption, and I know the assumption is right. I just don't know exactly how it manifests itself. But given uh, just given how successful you've been on the archery circuit and then, of course, in hunting too, you must you must have your mental game just dialed. Like you must have an unbelievable mental fitness level and and i'm guessing that you work on that in some way or that you think about that or that that's important to you in some way or another um i guess a is that is that true is that something that, that yeah, you think absolutely. about in the that, yeah i think um i've been forced to with with the tournament side of things just to really figure out how to excel and and beat people with with strategy and and um my mental approach yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that's a, a huge part of everything I do and I don't even mean for it to be anymore. <laughs> yeah. That's, and then maybe that's why you've gotten to the point you've gotten to. It's, it's second nature. Um, I'm curious about your routines. I, I imagine like before a, before a tournament, you have some kind of routines before the tournament to get your mind right. I imagine that you've got some kind of routine, maybe before you settle in for every single shot. I imagine you've got something like that, maybe even after a tournament when you're kind of winding down and trying to think about what went right, what went wrong, what can you learn from that, something like that. Um, if that's if that's the case, I'm curious if you have anything similar when it comes to your hunting life. Are there any routines that you have to help you get get ready for a hunt or when you're struggling on a hunt or anything like that? Yeah, um, I think it all boils down to what I'm focused on from from the first, from, from go. And that is the process. So even in a tournament, like I learned a long time ago, if I focus on end result, it never works out good. If I'm focused on this is a world championship, if I screw up all the things that are at stake, um, you know, I'm running out of targets, like none of that ever works. That mental approach is not going to work. I have to stay focused on the steps it's going to take to get me to my end goal. So that's like first, what's my goal here? Okay, that's the buck I want, or I want a mature deer, whatever that is. I want to win this world championship. Okay, what's the steps it's going to take to get me that? Okay, and then I never think about the end result again. I never think about that goal again. I'm literally focused on step number one to step number two, the process, the journey, the strategy that's going to lead to my end goal because it does me no good to look at what's at stake, you know, okay. That could be the biggest typical ever shot, you know, okay. What does me no good to think about that anymore? How do I get, how do I get in on it? So like then hunting, I'm not worked up on what's at stake when he's coming in. You know, I'm not thinking about anything other than the process, which is, you know, from, so shooting it's, I have a complete process from the time I step up to the stake, um, where I'm, keep my mind busy because if you let your mind just kind of sit there, it automatically goes to worst case scenario. What's at stake? Don't screw up. Don't miss. Don't punch the trigger. 
you know, all those things. And when you think those, you automatically do them. Like your mind is incredibly powerful. And if it's not working for you, then you are screwed most mm-hmm. of the time. So that's the same thing I think I take into hunting that I, I don't even intentionally do it, but I find myself like the other day in Ohio when the biggest buck of my life is standing there at 35 yards making a scrape. I'm not even thinking about it. It was so weird after it all happened. I was just like, that was maybe the calmest I've ever been. And I was self-filming 180 inch typical that I hadn't had a daylight picture of since September 5th. You know, it's like, (laughs) I felt like I was just like, oh, cool. Look at that. It's a giant, you know, but like, I never even, the thought never came into my mind. What was at stake? And I didn't realize it until after it was over. I wasn't panicking. Like if I don't get this done right here, I'm never going to see him again, which is probably the truth. And like, I just didn't let my mind go there. I just, I guess have, I've shot tournaments since I was six, highly competitive my whole life. And so I'm almost numb to some of those. Like as soon as those thoughts come into my mind, I think I just block them out so far that like they don't even register, I guess. I, I don't know. It's hard to explain, but it's like, I don't know. I think it's really kept me grounded and it doesn't mean I don't get nervous or don't, uh, don't love it or get super excited. Cause I do like, if you watch me win a tournament or they're competing against me, you know, like I'm shaking, I'm nervous. I'm like pumped hunting. Like I get jacked, but like, I don't crumble, I guess is the difference. I don't panic. It's more of an excitement. And, um, it's not anxiety. It's excitement, you know, like, Oh, this is cool. You know, yeah. like this is happening, you know, like, okay, like let's, make sure like we got a good range. Like, and that's the main thing with me hunting. I'm constantly ranging and it keeps my mind focused on how far he is rather than everything else that could go wrong. So my range finder's in my hand nonstop. So I'm clicking him every time he moves. I'm, I'm like, okay, 41. Okay. He's 38. Okay. Like it's constant. And so when he turns broadside, my mind is only on how far he is. So then as I knock up, it's only on what pin to use and where to put it. And so I'm at full draw, breathe, take a breath, 40 yard pin, bottom of him, squeeze, boom, it's over. You know, so it's like, then I get nervous because I'm like, holy cow, the biggest deer in my life. He could have turned at any second. You know, like (laughs) none of that stuff went through my head until it was over, you know? So I think the main thing is just focusing on the steps and the process instead of just looking at the rack and focusing on what you could screw up and what's at stake. Uh, when that big one's coming in and, yeah. and even the whole week, you know, you're just so focused on, you know, the steps and the process and the strategy that you're never really letting your mind go to a, a you know, a, a bad place where like you think you don't have a chance, I guess. Yeah. And, and that's, that's kind of where I was going to go next because I, that's, it's, it's hard to do. It's hard not to let your mind go to a bad place, at least for me, because, and, and mm-hmm. because of what you just said, like there's this temptation to always be looking at the end result and how your chances are slipping away or how opportunities were passed or how all these different things, you know, it can be being a goal oriented person. Like, like I'm a very goal oriented, very competitive person. And so mm-hmm. I, it's very hard not to do that. But what you're saying, like trying to focus on the process has been like the, the one thing that 
I keep on trying to actively do and get better at and that does help is whenever you start feeling that way, just just banish that and try to remember just what's the next step? What's the next thing I can do? Um, I know it was a year or two ago for you. I think you you went to Iowa for the first time, I think it was, and mm-hmm. you had like eight or nine days that just could not get it done. And yep. I think that was unbelievably frustrating for you. Uh, is there anything yeah. else? I mean, is there anything else you're doing to actively? I mean, you, I know you mentioned that sometimes you don't even have those thoughts anymore because you're so process oriented, but do you ever get that whisper and then you have, is there a, a mental tool or is there just like a word or a phrase or anything that really like snap you out of it? Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I still definitely, they creep in for sure. Like, um, yeah, that Iowa trip was a brutal trip, man. I mean, I, I waited my like five years to draw that tag and it was just like, geez, like this is, this sucks. <laughs> <laughs> There's not a booner behind every tree. Yeah, like, what, what the heck? What the heck? You know, what's going on out here? <laughs> Um, but no, like, yeah. So like this year, like I constantly have to keep myself in check, like in tournaments, hunting, it's not as bad because I think it's not tournaments are high stress from target one, because like, if you make a mistake, like it's pretty much most of the time it's over. Those guys are so good. So it's like, it's way harder to keep those negative thoughts out in tournaments. And so I, and I do that literally from January to August. So by the time hunting gets here, I've, I've, I'm pretty, I guess, um, <laughs> good at blocking those negative thoughts out for hunting season. Right. And I just look forward to it so much that it's like the negative thoughts I have in hunting or don't even compare to the ones that come into my mind when I'm <laughs> <Right>. shooting. <laughs> like, uh, I guess ideal worlds this year. Like I had a great year, but I had got my butt kicked on a few times by the same guy this year. Um, and so like, Ivy Worlds, we were battling it out for the world championship and going into the final date or the final 10 targets he had me by three points when, and he doesn't make mistakes very often. And it was like, dang, you know, my mind started to go to that place where like you lost, like it's over, like give up, dude, like stop putting yourself through this. Cause I like, I'm the type of person that hates losing so much in every scenario that like I will torture myself mm-hmm. to, and think I have a chance to win when I don't. You know, <laughs> like I, that's my fault is I'm too dumb to quit. That's what I say. Because I'm like, I can still do this, you know? Like, right. And so I be a world. I probably should have given up honestly. Cause it's like, he's not going to make a big enough mistake for me to get this back in 10 targets. But I was like, no, like we can still do it. You know, it's the same old, same old, same old. And I'll be danged if he didn't. And, um, I come back and won the I be a world. And it was like, Wow. Like with my mental, if I had just like let my mind go there, I would have not have been at the place to capitalize on that. And that's the same thing in hunting. Like if you let yourself, and we all have, I've been sitting there with my bottom lip stuck out in a tree stand on day five. And that's when I turn and look and there he is. And I'm so unprepared for that moment that I screw it up, you know? And so I think that's the main thing is just being in a good enough mental place and focused enough that when that opportunity does come, you can capitalize on it. And so I think that's more what I've gotten better at over the years than anything is even when it's been four days of crickets. And I think the chances of seeing a big buck are like 1%. I try to still keep myself in a good enough mental place that if he does step out, I'm ready. I know how far that tree is. I know what I'm going to do if he comes in over here. 
I know where I need to stop him in that window. So I'm constantly trying to think of the things that are going to give me an advantage if this deer comes in. And yeah, I can still be in a bad mood. I can still think it probably ain't going to happen, but I'm normally mentally prepared enough to capitalize if I'm given that opportunity. And that's, I totally learned that from tournaments, but it, it carries over into hunting so, so much. Yeah. So what about when you do fail? When, when you, you stayed ready and you were ready for it and you miss or you wound a deer mm-hmm. or you yeah. are shooting in a tournament and you're so close, but you, you shank the shot and you miss just by a little bit, whatever it is. How yeah. do you handle that failure in the moment? How do you recover from it? How do you get back on the saddle? Well, in tournaments, I say I give myself one day to celebrate or to be mad at myself because we got to prepare for the next one. So <laughs> that's what I say. Cause I've, I've, um, you know, you lose more than you win and that's just the way it is. Um, and in hunting and in tournaments. So, um, in hunting, you know, it's, it's brutal, I guess, because it's more of a, geez, there's not, who knows when the next chance is going to be, you know, in tournaments, I'm like, Oh, the next tournament's next weekend. I'm going to win that one. You know, like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to regroup and win that one. But with a giant deer or an animal you're after, you don't even know if there is going to be another opportunity. So it's a lot harder to recover for me when I blow that than uh, a tournament, I guess. So like the main thing I do is just regroup. I'm like, I have to like, obviously you're going to be down. Like you're bombed, especially like a wound in a big buck is like the worst, mm-hmm. you know, like it's like, pretty final like you you know he might die he might not and he might never show up again um and so it's like i didn't you know that's that's probably the worst feeling as a bow hunter that you could feel is is sticking a a, you know an animal and then like not recovering it and not knowing like yeah is he still alive is he dead somewhere you know what's going on i don't know and so um, that's hard to recover from, but you also have to realize that's going to happen and that's part of it. And it's easier said than done, but at some point you got to be able to be like, okay, like that's just part of it. And it's a sucky part of bow hunting. And, um, you got to do everything you can to make decisions to try not let it happen again, but it probably will if you hunt enough and shoot enough. And, um, you know, a lot of times I've found that when you don't, if you really put in the effort to recover a deer and you don't recover him, most of the time it's because he's still alive. Yeah. And, uh, I found that out so much, you know, you shoot a deer like last year, I'll just be straight honest. I shot a deer in Nebraska, looked like I hit him absolutely perfect. And, um, he wheeled as the arrow hit him and it went in right in the crease, but it came out like in front of the same shoulders, what mm. we found out later, but, like your eyes see one thing. Like, no, I smoked him. But what actually happened is something totally different. And so we actually tracked that deer for 1,500 yards and jumped him. And I'm like, holy cow, like, this is the next day he's still alive. And then a rifle hunter kills him two months later. It's like, what? (laughs) You know, like, crazy. I would have bet everything in the world that deer was dead, you know? And it was just brutally, like, mentally draining. So, I mean, I guess you just have to put in every effort to recover them, every effort to do it right. Um, but then if you don't, you have to be able to, you know, move on or, or 
I guess don't. I guess that's your call. But I I tend to be on the more like I hate losing side and I'm going to try to never let that happen again. And, you know, missing and is normally because of bad decisions at some point for me. You know, it's not taking the time to get a perfect range or not, you know, seeing that overhanging limb or or whatever it may be rushing myself. So um, I try to think about what I did wrong, what I could have done different and then um, learn from it and move on. But, you know, failure is definitely a part of bow hunting, um, a big part of it that you're going to have to deal with in uh, some form. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's. It doesn't sound very good to say, but getting good at failing is actually a very important part of bow hunting. <laughs> yeah, need, it really is. Yeah. There's, some, <laughs> yeah, if, there's something to I that. If I got mad, that's what I told somebody the other day, that somebody that we were talking about, I won't say who, was just always in a bad mood in camp. Like, always, like, something's going wrong. You mm-hmm. know, like, it's the end of the world, like, all the time. Everybody's probably got that guy they know. Oh, yeah. It's like, the negative Nancy nothing's going right and i was like dang if i wanted something to be mad about in hunting camp i could find it at any given time like if i just wanted so like there's always things that are frustrating or like that just get on your nerves hunting it's like gosh something's not working out right but you can't you can't have that attitude it's it's uh, more about i mean i don't even want to say it but it's like we're lucky you know to just get to be out here you know, hunting and chasing these critters. And like, sometimes I just have to remind myself of that. Cause I'll get so worked up, like chasing an animal that like I got blinders on, yeah. you know? And, and like, I feel like God sometimes brains me back in and it's like, Hey, you know what? Like, is that really what it's all about? You yeah. know? So, so I got to really refocus and go, you know what? If it works, it works. I'm going to give her heck, but I got to be thankful for just being able to be out here, you know, so doing true. this. Yeah. Could I, be way worse. Could be way worse. And, and I, I'm the exact same way. And the thing that has helped me the most, I think, just in the last three and a half years, is when I find myself in that mental state where I missed a deer or stuff's not going right or whatever, and I'm in the pits there for that evening sit or that moment when I'm driving home in the truck or whatever, if I just remember, like, remember your kids, Like, I just think Mm -hmm. about my kids like, God, I'm so lucky to have these two awesome little boys. You're so, you're so blessed. And, and that little perspective shift can always like help get me out of there quick. Like, yeah, yeah. The hunt's not going right. Or yeah, you screwed up. You made a mistake, but gosh, in the big scheme of things, this matters so little compared to those really important things in life. But like you said, we can get so worked up and all of a sudden it feels like it's life or death. Uh, but really, we're just out there like idiots running around with a stick and string. And uh, in the big scheme of things, there's there's a whole lot more important things to worry about. Absolutely, man. That that exact thought has got me through so many like tournaments and, and situations that were like high pressure. Like because it's like it, it'll crush you if sometimes that pressure will if you let it. And it's just like, you know what? In the big scheme of things, this really ain't that important. You know, it's like my kids are healthy. I got a lot to be thankful for. Like, mm-hmm. let's just enjoy it and move on, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> that's hard, easier said than done. Yes. And it's not like yes. I, I am in a great mood after I miss a giant animal. <laughs> it's not it. I, I'm still very upset, but it's like, okay, I'll get over it. Yeah. You know? so <laughs> Life will go on. <laughs> that's right. Well, uh, Levi, we gotta, we gotta wrap this one up, but, uh, great, great insight. I, I really appreciate you sharing this. And, and it's, it's, I know you don't, 
feel good about this, what I'm going to say next, but I, I think it is probably reassuring for a lot of people listening to know that even you miss deer every once in a while. Cause if that's the case, then everyone should feel like they're not alone because oh yeah, the, the best shooter <laughs> in the world is doing it too. So we're, we're in I've, good company. I've missed sheep, elk, deer, you name it. I miss. So, yeah, um, it's it just part of it. <laughs> well, uh, where can, uh, where can people go Levi to, to watch the show or to keep up with you and what you guys are up to these days? Yeah, the show is on the Outdoor Channel, and we uh, we air four times a week. It's called Bow Life. Um, our main airings are Tuesday night, Thursday night. I think Thursday night at like seven, seven thirty, something like that. Uh, I don't watch my show because I'm normally hunting, but <laughs> yeah. uh, anyway, it's <laughs> Tuesday nights and Thursday nights on the Outdoor Channel, and then pretty much can keep up with everything I'm doing on Instagram, which is Bow Life Levi on Instagram. So uh, other than that, yeah, we're just uh, this time of year full tilt hunting. So, yeah, gotta love it. Well, uh, you're already off to a great start, but I hope this success continues for you, Levi. I, uh, appreciate you taking time to chat. Same to you, man. I appreciate it. All right. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed this conversation with Levi Morgan. Make sure to uh, check him out in all those places he mentioned. And as I said at the top of the show, subscribe to that Wired Hunt weekly newsletter. You'll get all the updates from us and we'll keep you posted on the crazy amount of new whitetail content we're putting out there, hoping to help you have the best hunting season of your life. So best of luck out there. Enjoy. Thank you for listening and stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Market House has the cleanest, leanest, juiciest meat and seafood shipped to your home overnight. Expect the service of a local butcher and the convenience of a large supplier. Unlike many online butchers, you can grab just one meal's worth or lock in for a subscription box. Choose from grass-fed and grass-finished beef, American Wagyu, free-range poultry, grass-fed lamb, wild-caught king crab, seafood, and more. For 15% off your first order, use code COUNTRY at checkout. Just visit markethouse.com. That's M-A-R-K-E-T-H-O-U-S-E dot com. And use the code COUNTRY.